Okay. Not long ago, a a friend of our family celebrated her 91st birthday. Uh, She is an old neighbor of ours. No pun. No. (laughs) Well, actually, there was no pun intended there, but. Uh, she's an old neighbor of ours that uh, my wife Linda's kind of adopted as a, as a grandmother and so she spends a lot of time with her and she'll take her to lunch and take her out and spend some time just visiting with her and uh, you know she's still uh, pretty sharp as a tack and the bulb's still burning pretty bright and uh, she's fascinating to sit and to talk to because as you can imagine over 91 years she's got some insights that are worth listening to and in spite of her being hard of hearing um, we, we can still hear her okay, so it works out pretty good. Uh, but it's interesting because she's seen some marvelous technological advances, as you could imagine, over the last 90 years or so. Uh, she's seen, you know, it, it, just going down in the conversation with her, you know, if you think about the fact that what we take for granted today are things that at a time in her life didn't exist. And, uh, you know, automobile and radio and television and ESPN and ESPN2 and, and Fox Sports West and Fox Sports West 2. Those are some of the things that she's really appreciated about the technological advances. <laughs> so I just thought I'd share that with you. And, uh, you know, you're talking about a woman that's, that's seen, you know, an, uh, literally an ice box to refrigerators and, uh, and just the thing that she loves most about the technological advances over the last 90 years is air conditioning. And uh, she wanted me to go ahead and say that, not because I'm in the air conditioning business or anything, but it's just one of those things that, you know, some of us take for granted. And uh, those who don't have it understand how miserable that can be. Um, But then again, you know, God has done a good job of mixing up our prayer answers this particular summer. Um, You know, we pray for hot weather. You pray for it to be cool. So we got all of that in seven days. So it's been pretty interesting. But anyway, uh, you know, if you talk to to someone that has seen as many things as she has seen, it is impressive um, when you consider the fact that, you know, she has seen presidents come and go and world leaders come and go and geographical changes that have taken place throughout the world. And uh, one of the things that she shared, which I thought was was very pertinent to what we're going to be discussing today, and that's what makes it even more valuable, is that in a conversation with her, I said, you know, what's one of the biggest surprises that you can think of and reaching the age of 91. Now, of all the things that she's seen and all, of the, all the advances in, in different areas of life and you know, medicine and everything else, you know, what was the biggest surprise? You know what she said? The biggest surprise of reaching the age of 91 is how fast time has gone. Isn't that fascinating? How fast time has gone. Sometimes the evidence is right before our eyes. And I, I think I mentioned this story, but I'll do it again in light of what we're going to discuss. But sometimes the evidence is overwhelming. It's right in front of us. And um, it, it goes back to the story I hold, heard about the two older women at the retirement home. And uh, they were in the retirement home, and they were up in age, and they were bored. And, and uh, one of the things that uh, they were trying to do is figure out some way to break up the monotony of the time that they've been spending there. And the older guys seemed to be ignoring the women. And they, all they did was play chess or checkers or watch ESPN or ESPN2 or Fox Sports West or Fox Sports West 2. And, uh, you know, so they were trying to figure out some way to break up the monotony. And the one gal said to the other, she goes, I got an idea, but I don't know if you're up for it. She said, what's that? I said, well, I think what we ought to do is just streak right down the hallway, right in front of those guys playing checkers. She says, streak? She goes, yeah, you know, when you take off all your clothes and you just run naked right down the hallway. And she said, are you sure? 
He goes, well, what's, why not, you know? I mean, nothing else seems to work. We can't get their attention. So sure enough, these two gals at the point of time, they take off all their clothes, they go streaking down the hallway. The two guys are playing checkers as they normally did right at the place where they always do. And as these two girls ran by, these two ladies ran by, the one guy looked up, kind of gave a funny look, asked his buddy, said, did you see that? And he goes, yeah, I saw that. I said, what was that? The other guy said, I don't know. But whatever it was, sure needed some ironing. Um, sometimes the evidence is staring you in the face. Time is flying by. And uh, Billy, Billy Graham, I don't know if you heard the interview that he gave um, on 2020 with Hugh Downs not too long ago. I think it was a month or two ago. But one of the things that Hugh Downs had asked him was the same thing. Of all the insights that he had and all the traveling and ministry for 50 years and all the places he had gone and people that he's met... He said, what was the biggest, biggest surprise or, or, or the thing that stands out most of all these days that you've ministered to people? And he said that one of the things was simply the brevity of life. The brevity of life. How quickly time passes. You know, and if you stop and think about it, you know, we say things like, you know, I can't believe that, you know, I can't believe it. Where's the time gone? I can't believe it's August already. Where's the summer gone? School starting soon. Now, the kids say that. No, the par- parents aren't saying that. They'd be like, hallelujah. But, uh, you know, and, and or when you go on a trip, and, and uh, my, I talked to my wife, she's back in Pennsylvania, and, and uh, one of the things that she noticed was when you're away from family, or, or especially children, and you don't see a child for a number of years, and the last time you saw a child, he or she was a child, and now they're a grown teenager, and you look and you go, I remember when you were only, you know, this tall, and now, you know, you're a grown-up. And, uh, you know, it, kinda, it just kind of hits you, the reality of the fact that time moves on quite quickly. And uh, the point I'm trying to make is whether you live to reach the age of 10 or 100, time flies by. And I don't know why, but the older you get, the faster it gets going. And uh, this is exactly what Peter addresses. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. This is exactly what Peter addresses in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And we've been talking about the fact that Peter is giving us hope. And in this particular case, he's given us hope beyond wasting our time here on earth. The reality is exactly as has been expressed. Time flies by quickly. The brevity of life. How quickly that it has gone. And all you need to do is ask around and ask people that are older how true that statement is. And uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, he gives us hope beyond wasting our life or the precious time that we have here on earth. Time is precious, it's valuable, and it's, 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 specifically it's too valuable to be wasted. It's a precious commodity that once it's spent, it can never be spent again in any other way than the way that you chose to spend it. And in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11, we pick up on four life-changing attitudes that Peter wants to instill in us as character traits that will help us not to waste our time here on earth. 1 Peter 4, starting with verse 1, we read, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness, carouses, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all of this, they are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. 
but they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they, will, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. It says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God, and whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we look at this particular passage, the key to understanding it is found in verse 2. If you'll look at that with me for a second, he says, what is he trying to, to, to impress upon us? He's trying to impress upon us that we would live the rest of our time in a manner that is pleasing to God. So that we won't waste our time here on earth doing things that we used to do, but doing things that now God is showing us what we should be doing. And so that's really the key to understanding this. You know, how are God's people to use the time that God has given us? And uh, Peter, a man who certainly has tasted earlier defeat and probably looked back on his life and thought, you know, there were times in my life where I really wasted precious and valuable time. And we're going to see some insight into that as we go through this passage. And he's saying, you know, I don't want you to be guilty of the same thing. I want you to use your time fully so that you can use it in a manner that is pleasing to God. What are we going to do with the rest of the time that God has given us? Well, the first life-changing attitude of the four that we're going to talk about, we went into great detail, but just as a reminder, is that we're to have a militant attitude towards sin. In verse 1, he says we're to arm ourselves, to basically prepare for a spiritual battle. And the battle is, is that we're going to be tempted to waste the time that God has given us by pursuing and doing things that are just that, a waste of time. They have no eternal significance whatsoever. They sidetrack us from the mission and the purpose that God has called us to as far as God's children are concerned and God's army moving out throughout the, the, the face of the earth. He says to arm ourselves with a militant attitude towards sin. Perhaps the greatest, the, the greatest evil involved with sin is, is the fact that we get sidetracked by sinning and we waste valuable and precious time that God's given us. Probably the best illustration of that truth, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15 for a second. Luke chapter 15 illustrates the truth of not only this particular attitude that we're to develop, but also the next one that we're going to be talking about. And Luke 15, a very familiar story to many of us, is found in Luke 15, look at verse 11. We read the story of a man who had two sons. It says, And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed his swine. Said, and he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. As he traveled to this distant country looking for something that was missing and lacking in his life, he thought that if he had the money and the ability to do whatever he wanted to do and the freedom to travel and do all the things that the world believes will somehow fill the void and the emptiness in their life. 
And many of us can relate to that. If I only had more money, if I had a better job, if I had the ability to travel, if I had the stuff and the things that other people have to fill the time that's here on earth, then I'll feel fulfilled and content and satisfied and won't everything be great in my life? And maybe that's what that longing and that hunger is in my life, that I just need to fill some time. And the great deception of our enemy is that he wants people to believe that somehow they can pursue and find a way to fill the longing and the emptiness in their life by having things and stuff and all that goes along with it. And Jesus said, if you remember when the word was thrown out, the riches of the world and the deceitfulness of those riches, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches would choke out the word of God and the truth of God. And so what happens, one of, the, one of the strategies of our enemy is to somehow or another uh, sideline us or take us down a path that's broad, that leads to destruction, that's filled with stuff. And so this young man thought, that's what I'm missing in my life. I'm just going to go and do what I want to do and have a good time and live to please myself and then I'll be content and then I'll be fulfilled. And he ended up, like so many of us, he ended up slopping with the pigs. He ended up waking up one day, coming to his senses and saying, you know what, what in the world has happened to my life? I filled it with drugs and alcohol. I filled it with permissive sexual activities. I filled it with, you know, running and traveling and playing and having a good time. And one day in the loneliness of your bedroom when the party is over and the lights are out and nobody else is around and everybody else is gone and you lay in your bed and you go, what's happened to my life? What am I missing? He says, and he came to his senses. He said that even his hired hands, his father's hired hands are treated better than what this road led to, the one that he thought led to so much promise, the yellow brick road. And he says, I'll get up and I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father quickly said to him and his slaves, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine, was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found. And they began to be married. Now when his older brother, his older son, was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in and his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said, to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, my child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and he has begun to live, and was lost. And now he is found. What a beautiful story of making wrong decisions in life. And it goes even deeper than the fact that maybe this man who made the wrong decisions was received back by his father and was restored to full benefits that belonged to him as a son. But it also leads to the second attitude that we're to develop and it goes along with what Peter's trying to get across to us and we'll tie all these together in a second. But he says that we need to develop a patient attitude toward the lost. 
A patient attitude toward those who are lost. You notice his brother didn't have any patience toward his brother, toward the one who was lost. He was angry about the fact that his father had forgiven him. He was angry about the fact that his father had restored him and brought him back into the family. And yet, as we look at this, we realize in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, look what he says, and he says, and in all this, they're surprised that you don't run with them. They're surprised. Notice the contrast as we look at verse 2. He says, you know what? So as to live the rest of this time no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient that you've carried out the desires of the Gentiles. You've already been slopping with the hogs. You've already done all the things that you thought would fulfill you and bring contentment and joy into your life. You've carried it out. You've pursued a course of sensuality. If it felt good, you did it. There were no restrictions. He said you pursued a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness and carousals and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And he goes on and he says, you know, basically what we need to recognize and understand is this. There are people in this world who are lost. There are people in this world who are lost. And the Bible clearly teaches that God sent his only begotten son of the world that whoever believed in him would have eternal life. He says he didn't send him here to judge the world because the, the world was judged already. The world's already been condemned. The world was condemned the moment that Adam sinned. It says through one man's sin, Adam entered, entered into the world, and through one man, Jesus Christ, that we would be find forgiveness and life would enter into the world. The world is lost. The world is condemned. The world is living in darkness. And as a result, those of us who have experienced a relationship with God through Jesus Christ sometimes forget how lost and how dark that world really is. And we look at people and we see what they're doing. If you remember the story the last time we were together of Zacchaeus, here was a man who Jesus said, For I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. The father said the same about the son. He was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. And if you look at the stories, the similarities are striking. And how does a person who is dead become alive? How does a person who is lost become found? And it's very simple, and the story is striking, but when you stop and think about it, think about the story of Zacchaeus. He was a man who had everything the world had to offer, yet he recognized something was missing in his life. And so he went and he sought Jesus because he thought and he heard that Jesus had something to offer him that nobody else in this world could ever offer. He heard that Jesus could offer him eternal life. He heard that Jesus could offer reconciliation with God. He knew that he was a sinner. And he humbled himself before a mighty God. He climbed up into a tree, a man of great power and authority and great dignity, who held parties at his house with all the money he had robbed and stolen from other people. He was one of the social elite of his day. And yet he humbled himself before God and he climbed up into a tree and embarrassed himself before people so that when people saw him, they pointed up and they laughed and said, look at the little guy up in the tree. Isn't that Zacchaeus, the, the, the tax gatherer and the tax collector? And as he stood up, stood up in the tree or sat up in the branch or whatever he was doing up there, Jesus called to him and said, Today, come down, for I must go to your house. He recognized he was a sinner before God. He humbled himself, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You'll never turn down the prayer of a person who is broken before you, the Bible tells us. And as he stood in this tree or sat in the tree, Jesus said, Come down. And the Bible said he jumped out of the tree and he ran to Jesus and received him gladly. He received the love and the forgiveness and the mercy that Jesus had to offer. And you know, it was a fascinating thing. He recognized his guilt before God because after he had received Christ, the Bible says he was very aware of the sin that he had committed in his life. And he said, since I've been ripping people off, I'm going to go and give it back to them fourfold. I'm going to make right. I'm going to change. I'm going to go in the right direction. I'm going to do what you want to do. Not my will anymore, but I'm living to, to please God, not myself. 
And that's the contrast that we see Peter trying to draw out here. Saying, you know, you used to live to please yourself, now you're going to live to please God. That's how you're going to effectively use the time that God has given you and receive Him gladly. And it was Jesus who said, today salvation has come to this household. That's as simple as it gets and as beautiful as it is. The simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are sinners separated from God. That when we become aware of that, we need to acknowledge that and confess it before God and say, God, save me for I am a sinner. And the Bible says that that broken cry, that contrite heart, God will not despise. And as we ask Jesus Christ into our life and believe what God says, that he died for our forgiveness of our sins. He was resurrected again the third day to prove that, he has, that not only has power over sin, but also power over death. That he can give us the life that he promises. That whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. That's what the Bible says. And so here was a man, Zacchaeus, who believed in him and had eternal life. Here was a man, the prodigal son, who confessed his sin and was restored to the Father and had life that was given to him. And now as we look at all this, we need to recognize and understand if we're to make the most of the time that God has given us, we need to cultivate a patient attitude toward those around us who are lost and allow the life-changing experience that we have in our life and that they witness and they see to be that which draws them to the same love and the same mercy that we found in Jesus Christ. But you know what's fascinating as we look at this? Ultimately, our changed behavior is what God uses to draw people to Jesus Christ. Now, understand something here. When a person gives their life to Christ, and there's a genuine, God-experienced, life-changing conversion that takes place, there will be a genuine change in our behavior. There has to be. If there's no life change, there's been no change heart. Because behavior follows a changing of our heart. When we're born again spiritually, it changes how we see life. It changes how we see God. It changes how we see everything. And it changes how we see ourselves and our behavior in light, in light of the holiness of God. And so we begin to change. Now what's fascinating is this. Make no mistake about this. If we no longer participate in the lifestyle of verse 3 in 1 Peter 4, look at that again. If we don't live to please ourselves and we don't carry out uh, uh, you know, sensually pleasing ourselves, lustfully pleasing ourselves, if we're not going to the parties and we're not getting drunk and we're not doing all these things and, and, and God all of a sudden comes first in our life because the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So God comes first before everything else and an abominable adultery is anything that comes before God. And so all of a sudden, if this is what's happening in our life, we stop doing these things Make no mistake about this. The people that you hung with and did these things with, when you stop doing these things, they're going to think you're nuts. Hey man, aren't you coming with us to do the party? No. Why not? And I mentioned to you, the great line is, whoa, whoa, yeah, that's right, you got religion. You got religious. It's, oh, is it against your religion? You know, what I'm trying to think of, and, and in times where I've had this comment made to me, uh, one of the illustrations that I've used, and I'll share it with you because it, it may be a, a good way for you to be able to explain to them what's happened in your life and why you're different than what you used to be, even though it may have been yesterday. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, because it may have been just yesterday you were doing these things, and there, but last night you were here, but you know what? But today I gave my life to Jesus Christ and my life has changed and I don't want to do those things anymore. Well, what do you say to a person that says, well, what do you got, religion? 
So, no, that's not it at all. And the illustration I've used is this. And it works great for people who are married. You say, let me ask you something. Before you were married, did you date? Yeah. Did you kind of come and go as you please? You know, you weren't really accountable to anybody. You can just come and go as you please, unless you're a kid that was living at home and you had to answer to your parents, you had a curfew and stuff. But if you were a single person in the world on your own, and you dated, you dated. If you stayed out, you stayed out. And there was no real accountability. That's what you did. Say, so, well, didn't you date when you're single? Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, do you still date now that you're married? Well, no. Well, why not? What do you mean, why not? They look at you like you're looking at me. So why not? Well, you know, I quit dating because my wife didn't think that was a cool thing for me to continue to do. <laughs> Ran a buyer early in the marriage. She was, she was pretty much against it. You know, and so was I when it came to her. See, you know, there are certain things that you do because of the relationship that you're in. I don't just come and go as I please anymore because I feel an accountability to let her know where I'm going, to let her know what I'm doing, because that's the relationship that we have. So now it comes full circle to this. Well, why don't we do these things anymore? Well, I'll tell you why I don't do it. Because of my relationship with God. I love Him. I want to please Him. I want to do what's right before Him. I'm committed to Him. And the reason I love Him is because He first loved me. Even when I was doing the things I was doing, He demonstrated that love for me. Yet while I was a sinner, He sent Christ to die for me. And He's done the same for you. If you would just receive him and accept him and understand what he's done for you, then you'll understand why I don't do these things anymore. It'd be like any of us who are a parent that our children would say to their friends as they're invited to the parties or to do things that are wrong and that were wrong before us, it would be like them saying to them, you know what, hey, I appreciate you inviting me to the party. I'm not going to go. And the reason I'm not going to go is because I love my parents and I want to do that which is pleasing to them. See, isn't that what the Christian life is in a nutshell? I love God, my Father, and I appreciate what He's done for me in Jesus Christ. And I no longer do those things anymore because He has revealed to me that those things are not pleasing to Him. That's why I don't do it. It's not my religion. It's not that I feel if I had a beer or went out and did something that I would jeopardize my relationship with God. Because I believe in Romans 8 that it says nothing will separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But you know what? It's just because I simply choose not to do it. I don't want to do it. But I need to be patient toward those around me who are still doing it because they don't understand what you and I understand. They have not experienced God's love and forgiveness and His mercy so they don't have a relationship with God. They do what they do because that's who they are. We need to recognize and understand it. So many of us as Christians judge other people from their lifestyle and their actions and somehow or another try to convince them if they change those things, they'd be more pleasing to God. They will never be any more pleasing to God than the day that they accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Stop drinking and smoking and running and chewing and doing and all that stuff that may be involved in that lifestyle. They could give it all up and it won't change the fact that they're spiritually dead and they're lost before God. We need to understand that as Christians, because we are confusing the world around us, that they need to live a certain lifestyle, that somehow that's pleasing to God. Your lifestyle wasn't pleasing to God when you accepted Jesus Christ. You were dead in your sins. And so are they. 
And we need to be patient towards them because what we need to be is used by God to help them to see there's a difference in how we live now than how we lived with them when we were hanging with them. And they need to see that there's, there's contentment and peace and joy in our life that they're looking through, through a bottle or through drugs or through sex or through money or through things that they haven't found and there's something different about us. See, that's what this is all about. But you know what? They think you're weird. Now stop and think about this. Sometimes unbelievers become very angry when we live a life that's pleasing to God. As if somehow now we're self-righteous and we're better and more holier than thou. That's not it at all. And we need to help them to understand that that's not it. We don't think you're, we're better than you. The only difference between us and them is that we've received God's forgiveness in Christ. And they haven't. That's the only thing that separates us. It's not our lifestyle. That's a result of that. We need to recognize that, you know, sometimes people get angry at us as though our lifestyle now is somehow or another judging them for them continuing their lifestyle. But all i got to say to you is this. If you throw a, a, you throw a rock into a pack of wild dogs, guess which one's going to yelp? Which one? The one that gets hit. Okay? The one that gets hit. And if you are God's instrument of righteousness, so to speak, of right living, in this pack of wild dogs who are still doing what's pleasing to them, the one that's going to yelp the loudest is the one who's being hit the hardest. And sometimes they're the most vocal, and sometimes they're the closest ones to receiving Christ and getting into the kingdom of God. The ones who are apathetic and don't care, they're the hardest people to reach. But it's the ones who are the most persecuting of us and heap the most abuse on us are the ones that are just knocking on the door of the kingdom. And that gives me encouragement and it gives me hope beyond wasting my time. Because as I look at this, we need to understand, they think you're weird. Let me just explain something to you. We hear a lot of junk today about alternative lifestyles. Let me just give you the answer to alternative lifestyles. There are only two lifestyles. There is one that is pleasing to ourselves and it takes on a variety of shapes and forms. And there is another one that's... There's one, the Bible says, that walks by the flesh or to please the flesh. And there's one that walks by the Spirit. There's one that walks in darkness. There's one that walks in light. There's one that is lost and there's one that is found. There's one that is spiritually dead. There's one that is spiritually alive. There are only, as Jesus said, there are only two kingdoms. There are only two masters. There are only two roads. There are only two rewards. And there are only two eternal destinies. Period. The question is, which road are you on? You know, who do you serve as your master? And Jesus was pretty narrow-minded about it. He said, you know what? If I'm not your master, uh, then you know what? Then Satan is. If you're not alive spiritually, then you're dead spiritually. If you're not on the narrow path that leads to heaven, which he said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and you're on the broad, broad path where a lot of people are traveling, then you're on your way to destruction. You're on your road to hell. And that's as simple as it gets. It doesn't get any simpler than that. And we need to recognize and understand that we need to ask ourselves that question, which path am I on? Have I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and entered the narrow path that leads to heaven? If that's true, then there's going to be life-changing things taking place in my heart and in my life and in my behavior. If I think I'm on that road but nothing's changed in my life, I'm deceiving myself and I need to accept Christ as my Savior for the forgiveness of my sins. And that's as simple as it gets. We need to understand and recognize something that, you know what? When a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, changes take place. Listen to this story. Pulled this out of the paper this week. The headlines kind of caught my attention. I think they might catch yours too. Let me read them to you. Former general, butt naked, 
trades bullets for a pulpit in Liberia. Now, I can't make up stuff as good as this. I'm telling you right now, hey, it is. Butt, butt naked, or, or some of my friends say, butt naked. Uh, either way, the guy has no clothes on. Okay, let me just read a little bit about this. The annals of Liberia's civil war include gunmen and drag, human skulls used as soccer balls, and the videotaped torture of the ousted president, but nothing compares to the tale of General Butt Naked. Nude except for lace-up leather shoes and a gun, the general led his fierce butt-naked battalion into battle on behalf of the warlord Roosevelt Johnson, who hired the unclothed warrior for his fearlessness and fighting skills. As the war wound down, so too did Butt Naked's, uh, General Butt Naked's commitment to kill. Today he's an evangelical preacher leading his soul-winning evangel 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 evangelistic evangelical let me let me sound this out evangelical evangelistic hallelujah here we go all right so winning evangelistic ministry on a crusade around the war and warlords he uses his birth name joshua belai and wears a suit and ties he roams the battered capital with a microphone and preaches preaches peace and reconciliation let me just read a little bit about the general drunk and drug teenagers and boys composed much of the warlords fighting forces and in their intoxicated states, they would waltz into battle wearing flowing dresses, colorful wigs, and carrying dainty purses looted from civilians. They took ghoulish glee in displaying their trophies, posting a victim's head on a table set in the middle of a Monrovia intersection, using the skull of another victim for soccer practice. But the general, but butt-naked's battalion stood out among all the brutality, not just for its nudity, but for its brutality and its apparent fearlessness. He says that he was a, it was a result of a contract with the devil sealed at the age of 11 when he was initiated into a satanic society that demanded regular human sacrifice and nudity on the battlefield to ensure protection from his enemies. He said he was required to make human sacrifices before battle, and usually it was a small child, someone whose fresh blood would satisfy the devil. He says, sometimes I would enter under the water where children were playing. I would dive under the water, grab one of them, carry them away, and break their neck. Sometimes I'd cause accidents. Sometimes I'd just slaughter them he said in a matter-of-fact tone. Before leading his band of fighters to the front lines, he would stop and strip to only his shoes and then charge into the fray, yelling orders to his loyal followers. And it was during one of these battles on the new bridge linking central Monrovia to the outskirts that the general's conversion took place. He was naked on the front line when he says God appeared and told him he was a slave to Satan and not the hero that he considered himself to be. He gave his life to the Lord that day. And it sounds remarkably similar to the life of the guy who was known as Saul of Tarsus. And it says, Consequently, King Agrippa, when God appeared to me, I could not prove disobedient to his calling. There was something that happened in his life that changed drastically that day. It says that now when he goes out to preach, he says he sometimes encounters relatives of his victims. He says, I feel very bad, so bad. But he insists it was satanic powers that possessed him in the past. To try to make up for his past, he is now selling cassettes of his sermons for $20 each to raise money for a school for ex-fighters such as himself. He ends it with this quote, Even now I'm fighting. I'm fighting a spiritual war. He says, just as he heads outside into the rain for another day of preaching. Let me ask you a question. Which lifestyle is weird? Which lifestyle is strange? See, not all con conversion experiences are going to be that dramatic, but you know what? All genuine conversion experiences, there's going to be a difference in our life. There has to be a difference in our life. Don't forget, you know, lost people don't understand this radical change that takes place in the life of a friend or a family member or co-worker. You know, they, they don't think it's strange when people rack their bodies with drugs or alcohol or partying. They don't think it's strange when 
they pursue sexual fulfillment even at the expense of sexually transmitted diseases. They don't think it's strange to hear that a friend got pregnant and now is having an abortion. They don't think any of that lifestyle is strange. They don't think it's strange when people destroy their homes and their marriages and their families and their businesses as they, and ruin their lives by running from one sin to another. But what's so funny about the world we live in, the world we live in thinks it's very strange when a drug addict becomes clean or an alcoholic becomes sober or an immoral person becomes pure or a liar and a cheat becomes honest or a lazy bum becomes a hard worker or an abuser becomes an encourager because they've trusted in Jesus Christ, the world thinks that's nuts. Isn't it amazing? The world thinks that's strange. But it only thinks it's strange if we give Jesus Christ the credit and the glory and the praise. If I'm a drug addict and I clean up my life, boy, I'm, I'm happy for you. You're doing a good job. If I'm a lazy person and now I'm out there working hard, you know, and earning a living, hey, we're happy for you. We're proud of you. You know, if I'm drinking and I give up drinking, boy, we're proud of you that you gave it up. If I was a liar and a cheat and a thief and all those things, but I decided that I was going to clean up my life, the world shouts, we're so proud of you. But if all of that happens as a result of me putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and all things pass away and all things become new, you know what? The world says, I don't want to hear it. You're weird and you're nuts. And in fact, we're going to abuse you and persecute you and, and reap all kind of stuff on you. Because they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with that truth. We can believe anything that we want. We can believe everything that we want. And the world is so tolerant. Oh, let's be tolerant. Believe what you want. Do what you want. Oh, it's okay. As long as you're happy, we're tolerant. We're tolerant of everybody and anything but those who say, Jesus Christ changed my life. To that, the world says, I don't want to hear it. You can believe in the frog that jumps around in your backyard. And that's cool for you. But if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, even though the evidence is overwhelming, that He walked the face of the earth, that He changed this world like no other human being ever did in the short period of time that He was here, that there were more than 500 people that witnessed His resurrection, that the world's calendar system were changed because of this man and this man alone, and everything that He'd done over the course of human history in a short period of 33 years, if you put your faith and trust in Him who is alive today for the forgiveness of your sins, you're nuts! Who's nuts? Can you imagine? I'm thinking about the guys who were in battle with General Butt Naked. I'm thinking about how they've responded to all this. Look at the general. He's wearing clothes, he's wearing a coat and a tie, and he, now he's going around preaching. Look how weird he is. Look at the general. He's out there playing with kids. He's using a real soccer ball and some set of somebody's human skull. What, what a weirdo. Look at the general. He's out there having an iced tea instead of a glass of blood. What in the world? Isn't the general, he really got weird on us. What a wacko. He's out there preaching love and forgiveness and trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He's nuts. But he's changed. And they can't argue with what they see. The terrible irony of all of this, and we need to recognize, is this. They think it's strange that we don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And look what they do. They heap abuse on you. And you know what? We don't even know what abuse is. And we walk around and we feel sorry for ourselves because our old friends don't call anymore or because the people that you're working with think that you're a Jesus freak or a religious weirdo. Oh, and we're so abused. 
you know what, read Hebrews chapter 11 and get a good feel for what abuse and persecution really is. If you worked at Ganal Lumber back then, they would have stuck you in a log and sawed you in two. You know, they knew what abuse and persecution was, and we feel all abused and persecuted because people don't like us anymore. God help us to recognize and understand that we're wasting our time when we're walking around feeling sorry for ourselves because our life has changed, because we've trusted in Christ. Get busy and let your life be busy doing the things that please God so that the people around you go, what in the world's going on? I need to know more about what you believe and who you believe in. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. And we go through this and look at it says, because here's the problem. Listen to this. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You follow that? But they will have to give an account to him who is willing and able to judge the living and the dead. When our friends call us Jesus freaks, they don't even begin to realize that one day they will stand before that very Jesus and give an account of their rejection of Him. And the Bible says that they will be eternally separated from God in a place that was prepared for the devil and his demons, in a place that no human being was ever designed to go, but every human being that ends up there ends up there because they've rejected the love and the mercy that's found in Jesus Christ. They will have to give an account. And I don't know about you, but it changes my attitude toward the people who are persecuting me. Because I don't know anybody in my life that I can think of that I look forward to the day when they are condemned to hell for eternity. I don't know about you, but I can't think of anybody that's ever called me a Jesus freak or made fun of me or laughed at me or mocked me because of my stand for Christ. I can't think of any of those people that I hate that much and that I long for that much to spend eternity in hell. I, I just don't. And you know why I don't? Because I think it has to do with developing a patient attitude toward lost people. It has to do with understanding and recognizing, you know what, they need us. They don't even know they need us, but they need us. Let me just share with you two things. First thing is this. I want to warn you, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, I want to warn you about something. Take this for what it's worth. The first warning is this. Be careful about spending all of your time with other Christians. We get in these little comfortable groups of Christians, and we sip on church punch, and we talk about Bible verses, and we debate on when Jesus is coming and when he's not coming, if we're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, if we're this, that, and the other thing. And we sit around and we have all these little cool little conversations, and we don't like to be in the world where there's non-Christians because they're just so nasty. And, uh, and so we hang out over here, you know, and, and, uh, and so we separate ourselves from all these people. And I just want to warn you that, you know what, if you do that, you will lose perspective of why you're still here. We are here to reach people with the gospel, the love, and the mercy, and the forgiveness of Christ. And the only way we can do that is that we have to be out there with them. Not doing what they do, 
separating ourselves from a lifestyle standpoint, but being with them so that they can see and to hear what God has done in our life through Christ. That's the warning. And you know what? I'm frankly going to tell you something. The world thinks we're strange enough as Christians who live a life that's pleasing to God, yet we carry it to the umpteenth degree by just being weird because some of us are really weird. <laughs> hey, I, you know, take it for whatever you want. Some of us are really weird. And the reason we're weird is because we don't have any tolerance or patience for people that are lost and don't understand why they live the way they live. We think everybody should live like Christians. Well, only Christians can live like Christians, and some of us don't even do that. So what do we expect non-Christians to live like? And so we get really weird. And we try to be weird. So that they don't want anything to do with us. And we defeat our purpose in being here. Now let me also commend you. I'm going to commend you in that, you know what? Some of you have chosen not to be around your former friends and family members and, and, and people like that. And I want to commend you. And you know why I want to commend you? Because sometimes the temptation is too great to continue to do the same things that you did before. And you need time away from that lifestyle to learn how God wants you to live so that you can live in a manner that's pleasing to Him. But after you're ready to do that, then, you know what, try to make contact with some of those people on a one-to-one -one individual basis so it's not the group think you're dealing with. So you can explain to them, hey man, I just want to tell you, uh, you know what, I love you, I care for you, and, and, you know, and we need to help them understand they're accountable before God. And here's the illustration. If there's a fire coming to the neighborhood where your friend lived and your friend was asleep and it was 3 o'clock in the morning and you're the only one knew that the fire was going to come and consume their house, wouldn't you get up and go over and wake them up and save them from the fire that's to come? Or would you sit and say, but it's 3 in the morning and I don't know if they really want to be awoke at 3 in the morning. It's like, they don't know. You're going to go and do it. Why? You love them. Well, listen to me, folks. The fire of God, the wrath of God, the consuming judgment of God is coming for all of our friends, family, co-workers, neighbors that are around us, and it's going to consume them, and our job is to warn them that it's coming. Do they want to hear that? No. Why? Because, well, the fire's going to burn up my house, and I spent so much time building the house. It's going to burn it up. But, but, but I like the house. You're going to die in it. You know, what do we got to do to get their attention? The point of the matter is this. They're going to think you're nuts. They're going to heap abuse upon you. But don't worry about it because we know the truth and the truth has set us free and the truth will set them free. And we need to be bold and brave enough to risk upsetting them to tell them, you're going to hell! Probably not like that. We don't want to probably do it like that. That was for you. That, that probably won't help them. But, but maybe it will. I don't know. You know the people around you better than I do. Maybe some of them, that's what you got to do. You just got to grab them and say, I, I think you're going to hell. Don't you understand? Because it's truth. We need to develop an attitude of patience, though. And that means that, God, give me the right time and the right opportunity. Use my life to proceed what I want to say to these people so that they'll expect, they'll, they'll understand and accept what I have to say in meekness and in reverence, explain to them the hope that is within you. Third attitude. We're running out of time. An expecting attitude toward the return of Christ. Look what he says. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Isn't that the truth? The end of all things is near. Peter realized that he had very little time left. Not just for himself, but for the people around him. Whether you live to be 10 or 100... The end of time is near. 
we are 1,900 years closer to the truth that Jesus Christ is coming back. They believed it would be any time. I believe it could be any time. And when you realize that time is short, it should change your perspective of everything. I'm telling you right now that people that were on the Titanic, that when they found out the ship was sinking, I don't know, I wasn't there, but I'm going to guarantee you this. I don't think they rearranged the folding chairs on the deck, and I don't think they pulled out a Monopoly game to play Monopoly. There's a sense of urgency that only happens when you realize that time is short. You talk to any person who is told by a doctor they've got three months to live, or six months to live, or 12 months to live, and I'll guarantee you it changes the way they perceive everything in life. Folks, I want you and I want myself to understand that time is short. We don't know how much time we have. We don't know if Jesus is coming today. But what we do know is this, that time is precious and valuable and too valuable to be wasted. Time is short. The end of all things is near. Great story. And I want to share this with you. I pulled it out of uh, Billy Graham's autobiography. It was a fascinating story of his encounter with then-President John F. Kennedy. And he was asked about things that had taken place in his life and his relationship with people, and this is one that stood out in his mind, and this is what he said. He said, the last time I was with Kennedy was the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast. I had the flu. Mr. President, I don't want to give you this bug that I've got, so I'm not going to talk right at your face. He said, oh, I don't mind that. I talk to a lot of people all day long who have all kind of, <laughs> who've got all kinds of bugs. He says, after I gave my short talk and he gave his, we walked out to the to the, uh, to the, ho- uh, the hotel to his car together and as was always his custom at the curb he turned to me and he said Billy could you ride with me back to the White House I'd like to see you for a few moments I have something I want to talk to you about he said Mr. President I've got a fever not only am I weak but I don't want to give you this thing couldn't we wait and talk some other time it was a cold snowy day and I was freezing as I stood there without my overcoat of course he said graciously his hesitation at the car door and his request haunt me still to this day. I've wondered since that day what was on his mind. Should I have gone with him? And it was an irrecoverable moment. It was a precious moment in time that he could never get back again. And it's haunted him for, what, 35 years? Why? Because it was shortly after that that John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. What stands out in my mind as I read that story and I thought about the fact that, you know what, time is short. How many irrecoverable moments are we going to waste before we're used by God to tell people of the love and forgiveness that we found in Jesus Christ? Number four, a fervent attitude toward the saints. This is a topic in and of itself. The simple truth is this. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. You know what else we need to do in the time that God has given us? We need to get busy 
loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Above all, do you realize how important that this is? Because one of the strategies of any enemy is to divide and to conquer. And God's people for way too many years have been spending way too much time and way too much energy and way too much effort fighting one another. Above everything else, Peter says, persecution is coming to God's church. And above everything else, God's people must love one another. He says we're to fervently love one another. It's an athletic term used of a runner as he crosses the finish line and he stretches forward and leans across the tape. And it means to keep on loving one another fervently. Keep it up. Even when people make you sick and tired sometimes and their attitude stinks, you keep loving them and you keep loving them and you fervently have that love for them. Because there's a day coming where we need to stand united as God's people. And that day of persecution is knocking on our door, I'm telling you right now. Because there is no tolerance toward Jesus Christ in our country today. There is no tolerance towards God's people. There there is no tolerance toward anyone who says there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no tolerance to anybody who stands for that message and speaks that message clearly. There is no tolerance for those who live a life that's pleasing to God rather than indulging in their own self-gratification. There's no tolerance for any of that. And he says, above all, you must love one another deeply. It would be a wonderful thing if all God's people would love each other, regardless of what church they go to, regardless of what Sunday school class they're in, regardless of what morning service or evening service they go to, or what Bible study they're in during the week. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we just loved one another because we've trusted in Jesus Christ and we're His people and His possession, called for His purposes to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into light. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? to see, and a powerful testimony to a world that's living in darkness. How do we do that? Be hospitable. Open your home. We laugh. Our, our house is called the Inn on the Hill. In fact, I'm, still, I'm waiting for the zoning commission of the city of Orange to come and, and say something about the revolving door we have on our front door. You know, we got a little doormat and a greeter. Uh, you know, our, our home is open. People are always there. People that know us know that. And you know what's wonderful about it is? When they come into our home, I hope that they feel the love of Christ. We need to be hospitable without grumbling and without complaining. That's what it says. We're to use the gifts that God's given us. Each one of God's people is given a spiritual gift. Use that gift. Discover that gift. Try to figure out what it is. And then serve God and use it to His glory. Not yours, but to His. That's what we're supposed to be doing. How do we take advantage of the time that God's given us? One, we develop a militant attitude towards sin. Arm ourselves. Stop wasting time living in sin and a lifestyle that's not pleasing to God. It just neutralizes your testimony before the world. If Jesus Christ set you free from sin, then live like you know that you are. Number two, develop a patient attitude toward the lost. People around you live like they live because of who they are. We sin because we have a sin nature. It's a result of who we are. We need to have a patient attitude toward them, praying for God to open the door in their hearts to listen to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to use your life and my life to be used by God to bring that person to forgiveness in Christ. Develop an expectant attitude towards the return of Christ. If you thought Jesus was coming today, how would it change all of your plans? If you thought you only had a week to live, how would it change how you deal with people around you? 
Are there people that you'd want to share the gospel with that you just haven't had enough courage yet to do? Pray that God will give you the strength and the courage to do it today, to do it tomorrow, to do it the next day. But don't wait much more time than that. Why? Because time is short and it's precious. Develop a fervent attitude toward the saints. Start loving people around you. Let's be more encouraging of one another and less discouraging. Let's build each other up instead of tearing each other down. Because God then can use His people for the purposes. And that's why He's left us here. Sometimes I wonder why God's left some of us here. You think, you know what I mean? Amen. Don't you say amen. But I love you. I'm not so sure it's fervent yet. But we're working on it. I don't know how much time we have. I don't know how long our ambassadorship is going to last. If you remember the, the note that Dick Capon, ambassador to Spain, got from George Bush that read simply, Dick, above all, finish strong. George Bush, the White House, January 5th, 1993. I read that and I think, you know what? Chuck, above all, finish strong. The kingdom of God, August 10th, 1997. Signed, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the relevancy of it. God, I, I, I don't know how much time any of us have. You do. But I know what we're to do while we're here. Father, let us leave here today changed as a result of the truth of your message. People that love the brethren. People that love the lost and are patient towards them. A people that have a militant attitude towards sin and won't tolerate it in our own lives. And a people that live expectantly. The great hope of every Christian believer is the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That God, while we wait for that day, we need to get busy living to do the will of God. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Um,